afternoon. Do you have a fallback plan? I mean, even just in the situation that you're in now, it might be pretty mundane or, or whatever. Do you think you have a fallback plan? You know, maybe you're a student and if you fail out, what's your what's your plan? Or what what is that thing if you lose your job? What's your plan? I think sometimes it's just wise to have a fallback plan, right? Might be you're going to move back into your parents, or your cousins will support you, and you know that you have some sort of social support behind you. If you think about fallback plan, it might be decent and fine. And, or maybe you don't have a fallback plan, and if you don't, you feel like you're alone, that you really have to persevere and strive. It all depends on you, and sometimes that can be really good and emboldening. Sometimes that can be you're just in a survivor sort of mode, sort of ethic. But the, uh, the folks who received this letter, they had a fallback plan, but the fallback plan was to return to Judaism. And so their fallback plan was inhibiting, it was preventing them from trusting Christ. So in that case, a fallback plan becomes a sort of tether that prevents you from stepping out. I remember hearing uh, the founder of Love 146 talk about the, the start of this nonprofit, the, this new small business, and he, he described it as sometimes you just have to jump off a cliff and make wings on the way down. He came to a point, I guess, where he was not tethered to anything, and that forced him to be risky. That forced him to be bold, but it was also probably a little scary. In that case, not having a fallback plan was really good. Because if he had a regular job, let's say, and you're trying to start a new business, the new business is not going to require such boldness and risk-taking because you can always fall back onto this other job that you have. Well, it wasn't unlike what the congregation of the Hebrews was going through. Because the fallback plan of falling back into Judaism looked pretty attractive. They wouldn't be persecuted by the culture around them. It seemed to have more ancient credentials than Christianity. It wouldn't have brought such isolation and loneliness maybe from their family or from the culture around them. And so we're jumping into chapter 3 where he is trying to, the writer is trying to address this sort of timidity, uncertainty, the fact that they may just fall back, fall back into Judaism. If that was, if you were trying to convince someone not to fall back to this inferior uh, backup plan, what would you say? How would you approach it? Would you say the fallback plan isn't worth it, it's not good, pursuing Christ is much better? What, what, what do you think you would do. We're going to see what Scripture does. We're going to see what God is speaking to us, who I know have many sort of fallback plans, maybe very practical, real ones, but also existential ones. What's my fallback plan if I don't really want to be a Christian? Is that really worth it? What am I, what's that at risk of losing? Is it costing me anything? Well, before we jump in, let's pray. 
Father, we praise you that we have come today on Sunday, on the Lord's Day. We praise you that we can come into your presence and know that you are here, that you speak, that we have heard your word of forgiveness and pardon. And we pray that we would hear from you and you alone again, that your Holy Spirit would be mighty in in taking this passage and applying it to our minds and to our hearts and opening us up to the word of your gospel. We ask that you would speak now and glorify Christ. It's in his name. We pray. Amen. All right, so we're coming to uh, the start of chapter 3, which is a little bit of a new section, but I'm going to remind you in a second what what chapter 2 ended with. But he starts very clearly, it's a new section, because he starts by saying, consider Jesus, or fix your eyes on, put your hope in, uh, turn your eyes to this one that is Jesus. And I want to look first at what is so special about Jesus, and then what would be the imperative out of that. What would it mean to consider it? So if you're being told, look to Jesus, what would be so special about Jesus? Here we have some pretty amazing descriptors here. First he says, he is our apostle and high priest. That is a combo that doesn't happen anywhere else in the New Testament. And also, it's a pretty rare, if they were by themselves, calling Jesus our apostle and high priest. Normally we think of apostles, we think of Peter, people like Peter and Paul and John and James. But here we're told that Jesus is the apostle, the apostle among apostles, if you will. That word simply means sent one, or messenger, or angel. And so we're given this combo of Jesus is the one who has been sent from God to you, and Jesus is the one, your high priest, who comes from among you to God. So that's the first uh, point that we want to see, how those two things work together. Apostle and high priest is kind of like God's word and God's work. We have both the fact that he was speaking with authority as the son, the things that he spoke. That goes back to the very start of the letter of Hebrews, where it says, yeah, you have heard from your fathers, your ancestors. He spoke different things in different ways in many places. But in these last days, he came and spoke by the son. There's a sense of finality. You had some really good things, but now gives us the real thing in the Son. What he says by the Son is the final, full glory of God. We can trust it. It comes with authority. We don't have to worry if there's something more to be said from God because he has spoken once and for all by the Son. He's the Apostle. But he's not just a messenger. He doesn't just teach us things. He doesn't just give us examples. He's also our high priest. And that language, he's going to spend the next few chapters talking a lot about priest in the book of Hebrews. But when you hear priest, don't, you may have preconceived notions or you may think what it means. It really has more to do with representing the people to God. Taking the sins of the people of Israel and placing them on the, an animal, say, of sacrifice so that they may approach God. They were a type of go-between, middleman, mediator. And Jesus is not one priest among many. He is the high priest. He is sufficient so that we can say, yes, I can come into the presence of God. On the coattails of Jesus, we stand. 
So we have apostle and high priest. And in the, in the Greek there, Jesus is sort of left to the end of the verse to, to give an incredible emphasis on who, who are we to consider? The, the apostle and high priest, who is this one? Jesus. This isn't just anybody. It's Jesus. And some of that is coming up from uh, earlier in the book. But I don't know if you... For me, when I first became a Christian, I became a Christian in college, it was hard for me just to say the name Jesus out loud. I would often say Christ. It seemed more uh, palatable. It didn't seem as offensive. But here, we're told to focus on Jesus. Not, nothing specific about the name necessarily, but on the person, the one who did this. Came amongst us to take on flesh and blood. To be a human among us. And represent us to God. So that's who Jesus is. We're also told another another thing that should strike us, but may get lost on us since we're not first century Jews. It says that he has greater glory than Moses. Moses. I don't know who has a lot of glory in your mind right now. Maybe it's LeBron James or, I don't know, a political figure or whatever. Who has great glory in your mind? Moses is like their LeBron and Trump. and I mean, Moses is the guy for them. Moses is the guy. So you can't just say this. You can't just throw that around. Yeah, he's, he's better than Moses. What? Moses? Moses was faithful in God's house. That passage in Numbers 12 is when Moses' credentials and Moses' authority is threatened by... Uh, by two people in Israel, and God comes down and says, who are you? I speak to Moses. He is the one that is faithful in my house. Just to give us a sense of uh, how important he is. He is faithful as a servant. He was a faithful servant throughout his time. And he led the people of Israel out of Egypt, this great story of Exodus that Israel is always told to go back to. This is who you are. You've been led by Moses, but now there's one who is greater. Of greater glory than Moses. And that is Jesus. You may remember in, the, in chapter 2 there's this incredible passage that says, Jesus has come to share flesh and blood and we see him now having been exalted With glory and honor, he is crowned at the right hand of the Father, but we don't yet see everything in subjection to him. So he faced death and he saved us from lifelong slavery to the fear of death, we're told in chapter 2, which is reminding us of Moses who led them out of slavery to the promised land. Christ is the one who led them out of that slavery, but we don't see him fully in power because some things are still, what, broken, sinful. But the thing we see now is Jesus crowned. That's supposed to give us confidence. It seems weird because it's like, where, so where is Jesus now? We don't, I don't see him with my eyes. But faith gives us these eyes to see him in power, exalted, having ascended, gone through the other end of death. 
That's the one who's greater. Moses. Even Moses couldn't enter the promised land. We get to see Jesus. In comparison to a servant, he is a son. In comparison to the house, he is the builder. Do you think of Jesus that way? Or is is Jesus just a name? Is it another moral teacher among others? One among many? If someone were to say to you, consider Jesus, does that have weight? The apostle and high priest, the one who is greater even than Moses. Greater even than the Pope or LeBron or Trump or whoever's Whoever is that for you? Greater glory and faithfulness. And we're told one one last final thing about why it's so incredible to tell a Christian to consider Jesus. And that's because you have become partakers in Christ. It doesn't just say, consider Jesus who is afar off, who has done something in the past, who has great glory in heaven. But he says, that same one, that's the one who you share in. He says it three different times. You are God's house. You have become partakers in Christ. We have come to share in Christ. That should really strike us. Because he doesn't just exalt Christ to this incredible degree, to a greater degree than any other person that they would have uh, prized or, or made a hero. He says, you have become sharers in that person. You have become, you commune with that person. You are one in Christ. Which is a unbelievable fact, and it's something that really is all over the New Testament once you start to look for it. Why should we consider Jesus? This is who you are now. You are the one who is in the exalted apostle and high priest. You are the one who tastes a new resurrection life in Christ. You are the one who is no longer enslaved to a fear of death because death has lost its sting. Why should you consider, of course you should consider Jesus because that's how we consider our life. We can't think of our life apart from Christ. Now maybe you are here and and you're not quite sure if you're, excuse me, if you're in Christ. You're not quite sure who Jesus is. But just imagine, see this as, as as a way to consider the Christian life as it's not just we're following a great apostle or messenger. It's not just we're trying to live up to some standard. It's that our whole new life has been connected to the one who has already done that. Our whole life has been seen as if we're the ones who were raised. As if we're the ones who are in heaven. By faith, not quite yet. We still struggle with sin. We still struggle, and that's why he's going to give us these exhortations in a minute. But... That's who you are now. That should, that should really wake us up, and that should really say, any backup plan compared to that? Pales. Pales in comparison. What are you holding back for? 
What are you going to settle on compared to that? What could compare at all? And what could possibly have a, a deeper sense of certainty and authority than the one who, back in chapter 1, we're told, is the exact imprint of God's nature? Is the radiance of His glory. That's the one who spoke to you. That's the one who represented you and all of your sin and all of your nastiness and, and the darkest, deepest things you were not even willing to face. He took all of that and brought it to God to be forgiven. That's the one you get to share. Did you catch how we were addressed? Therefore, holy brothers and sisters, so it's the term for siblings, therefore, holy brothers and sisters, who share in a heavenly calling. You have been called from God in heaven. That is your purpose. That is your heart. That is the treasure that is kept, guarded by God's power. That is all a free gift. By grace. Through faith alone. That's who we are now. Well, As he's saying this, he says a couple times, if you hold fast, or if you don't harden. And now I want to look at these uh, couple therefore statements. Therefore, since this is true of you, therefore, what should I do? Do not harden, hold fast, take hold of, focus on Jesus. Let's look a little more detail in what these are. And so first, when he talks about the rebellion... He's quoting this passage from Psalm 95. And he quotes it several times. Let me just uh, read the start of Psalm 95. O come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into His presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to Him with songs of praise. For the Lord, Yahweh, is a great God and a great King above all gods. In his hands are the depths of the earth. O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker, for he is our God. And we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. I would encourage you to read Psalm 95 again later today. To seep in that exhortation we are given to come and worship him. We are the people of his pasture. We are the people of his hand, sheep of his pasture. And then it gives us this warning. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Why would that sort of warning be there? What is he trying to say? He's just exhorted us to worship him. Then he gives us this type of conditional statement. Well, he describes what it was like for those who originally heard it back in the Exodus story back in Moses. He calls it rebellion, he calls it testing, he calls it provoking the Lord. But it's a rebellion that is not out of ignorance. It's out of knowing, having seen God's work. It's not a rebellion that uh, they don't even know what they're doing. It's a rebellion that is not neutral. Now maybe you, you think about sin in general or in abstract ways. And it seems like a lot of people are just neutral to God. That you have, you have Christians over here, maybe you have like militant atheists over here, but then you have a lot of people who are neutral. 
That's not what we're told in Scripture is the case. That there is a rebellion in our heart because we have suppressed the truth of God. We hide it. We choose to say what God has done in my conscience, has told me what is true, all the ways that we look around and see God's glory, we are rebelling against him. For Israel, it was taken to another step because Israel, what? This is the same generation that was brought through the Red Sea. Brought through the Red Sea. This isn't a couple generations later and then they start doing what we do. Well, maybe the sea was just low down and they could walk on the sea like a foot, and it was a foot deep, and that makes it more rational or whatever. This is the same generation that walked through when the sea parted and it was dry land. This is the one who hardens their hearts and rebels. Now, before we cast stones on them, we are told over and over, you are in the same situation. And therefore, we are warned to not do the same thing. That means it must be possible. That means it must be possible to harden our hearts like the Israelites did. And he says just as much at the, in the end of this passage where he says, don't you realize the same people who fell in the wilderness, they're the ones who disobeyed, they're the ones who were with Moses. So why would that be important? It's important because we need to realize just how deceitful sin can be. He says, beware of the deceitfulness of sin, the attractiveness and seduction of sin. So if you were to think about maybe the the fallback plan that you have or the, the thing that you think, the idols that you worship in your heart, what are they going to give you? Think about it also as, how are they deceiving you? How are they lying? Because the deceitfulness of sin to the generation in the wilderness was what? God, you're going to leave us. God, you're not actually that powerful. They say, did you bring us out here so that we would starve and perish? Because they didn't like the manna. The manna wasn't very tasty. What, how is that deceiving them? It's saying maybe Egypt was a little bit better. Maybe it was better having to make more bricks with less straw and being slaves to Pharaoh than having to trust in God wandering through the wilderness. Fill in those things. You are not at threat of being put into slavery under Pharaoh. What are you in threat of falling into slavery? What is that idol or sin that threatens to deceive you? Do not rebel. Do not harden our hearts. There are many things, as we know, who try to deceive us, try to convince us it's going to give us something. It could be porn, it could be greed, it could be covetousness, it could be anger, it could be all sorts of things. All of which are deceitful. The other thing I want us to notice is when it, in, in Psalm 25, when he says, there are people who go astray in their hearts and they have not known my ways, that's right after he said, though they had seen my work. They had seen it and didn't know it. They had witnessed it, but didn't listen to him. 
They had ears but could not hear. That seeing, what have we seen? We see, as we're told in Hebrews chapter 2, Jesus. And let me say again what I mentioned earlier. Jesus shared in flesh and blood, partook of the same things that through death He might destroy the one who has the power of death that is the devil and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. He had to be made like His brothers in every respect so that He might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. That's the work that we have seen in Christ. That He has atoned for our sin. That He has dealt with it. And He says, you have seen this. Hold fast. Cling to it. Don't act as if this can't happen to you. Don't coast. You can't coast through the Christian life. We believe in the sovereignty of God, the perseverance of saints. We can talk more about uh, those things that back in the well after the service, but he's saying now, that doesn't mean you can coast. That doesn't mean you can have an entitlement to say, hey, I'm with the crew. Jesus already says. He saves. That's what was going on with the Israelites. Only Joshua and Caleb made it to the promised land because they were some of the spies that went over. They looked in the promised land. They came back to Israel and said, guys, we can't go there. They have really strong armies. How can God ever defeat these? Our God? How could He ever do that? But Joshua and Caleb believed. And so this visible community of Israel only had Joshua and Caleb with personal faith in God to give them the promised land. That's what He's saying to us. Even if we are a part of the visible community, community of the church, he is saying to you, hold fast. Cling to him. There is a type of entitlement that can come that says, I don't need to hold fast anymore. I don't need to cling. And what Hebrews is doing is not only comparing us to the generation in the wilderness, it's actually saying there's more at stake now than there was then. He's saying there's a risk of unbelief then, and if they didn't have faith, they lost an earthly rest. If you don't have faith now, you're going to lose a heavenly rest. So there's more at stake now, but lest we're scared, there's more reason to believe now. We have a much greater one. Remember where we started we can trust and see and consider and look at Jesus. We can look to the one who is greater than Moses. We weren't only slaved from we weren't only saved from physical slavery. We were saved from slavery to death, to sin, to all of the idols of the world that lie and deceive us. So there is greater at stake, but there's much greater reason to believe, and therefore the writer of Hebrews can say, behold Christ, cling to Him. Behold who you are now as God's house, the one who shares in Christ. Cling to Him. So those warnings, the the conditional statements, are not so much warnings, I would say, 
as statements of fact. There are serious warnings in Hebrews. It's just not the, this chapter where we find them. It's saying, this is who you are in Christ if you hold fast. Why would you not want to hold fast? Why would you not want to encourage one another, the fellow brothers and sisters whom Jesus called brothers and sisters, to encourage them? As long as it is today. Not just today, because we call the day today, but as long as we are in this wilderness, period. As long as we are, as Peter puts it, elect exiles. We have been chosen, saved by Christ, waiting the final glory that Jesus is already sharing. So how do you take these? How do you take these imperatives of holding fast, clinging to, what needs to to change in your life or your approach to Christ that really considers who He is, that doesn't act falsely entitled and forgets who Christ is, that acts as if we can just kind of coast through and forgets that we're in danger, that the Christian life is risky. I don't think we have a much of a sense of that. That we don't really need to hear this exhortation to hold fast. Stay the course. What do you need to stay the course for? we got all these other fallback plans. I'm educated. My parents love me. I'm an only child. They idolize me. doesn't matter what I do. I can always move back to them. It's true. It might not be true for you. I know that may be a very scary thing. Move back in with your parents. I know I could. We have all sorts of fallback plans that actually end up robbing Christ of His glory because we don't realize they're preventing us from running after the calling that we have been called to. That actually prevent us from jumping all in. That actually prevent us from treating Jesus who He is. The one that spoke with final authority as the Son and represented us, humans fallen in flesh and blood, to God the Father. You can't consider Him and then coast. You can't consider Him and then yawn. You can't consider Him and then think our life is going to be the same. Because we have not reached our destination. We haven't reached the place that our hope is pointing to. And maybe that's also another area that we need to rethink. That we need to rethink the fact that earth is not heaven. We shouldn't expect it to be. And we are on a journey. We are on a pilgrimage. The book of Hebrews assumes this. The vast majority of Christians throughout history have assumed it. But our life, in many ways, is so good, we forget. We have so much material comfort we forget. We have so many rivals for our heart we forget that this is not the end, but this is a foretaste. That Christ is trustworthy and certain and He feeds us. He feeds us most of all by the Lord's Supper, which itself is pointing beyond itself to the union that we have with Christ 
and to his death until he comes again. That's what we need to be fed on. Jesus, our faithful and merciful high priest, trust him, cling to him, believe in him. Do not harden and rebel in your hearts. Don't let that crust develop. It develops little by little. It doesn't develop all at once. It develops little by little because we've stopped running one way and we've started to coast. Let's take a moment and remember who Jesus is as we come to his table where he declares he is the author of life whom you killed and yet I loved you. Let's take a moment.